special because um well I think the moon's always special but uh apparently the the last time this kind of long uh eclipse happened was in the 1440s so I think that's pretty pretty long time ago um but you know if you ever go out and watch the moon on a partly cloudy night on you watch the full moon coming in and out of the clouds uh it's really beautiful and um that's that's kind of like a lunar eclipse that you can have um well any any time there's clouds to uh to participate anyway uh i'm here with you you're here with me uh there doesn't seem to be any justice in the world and uh it's that's it can be pretty hard to keep going sometimes so if um if you're feeling alone and struggling and thinking that things are senseless and meaningless and awful uh well you're not alone and uh I'm sending you a bear hug and let's look at the moon together and try to take care of each other and try to keep going um and do what we can to to change things and make them better uh not give in to complete despair it can be very hard can be very hard i know uh so i'm just going to i'm going to read to you um you know just something pleasant with animals because um frankly they're far superior to humans um so uh and since it's the beaver moon there's some beavers in this so uh okay uh i'm going to read you a chapter from watched yeah i just hit the microphone i'm going to do it again yeah uh, that was me <laughs> okay Watched by Wild Animals by Enos A. Mills and this was published in 1922. And uh, I'm going to read the chapter uh, Winter Ways of Animals. On the way home one winter afternoon, I came upon a beaver colony a little below Timberline. In the edge of the woods, I stood for a time looking out on the white smooth pond. 
Lines of tracks crossed it from every point of the compass. Two camp birds alighted on a tree within a few feet and looked me over. I heard a flock of chickadees going through the woods. A lynx came out of the willow clumps on the opposite shore. He walked out on the snowy pond and headed straight for the house. He was in no hurry and stepped slowly along and climbed on top of the house. Here he sniffed a time or two, then raked the house with right forepaw. He sniffed again. Nothing in reach for him. Climbing down off the beaver house, the lynx walked around it and started for the woods near me. Catching my scent, he stopped, took a look, then went full speed into the Engelman spruce forest. Other lynx had visited the top of the beaver house and also prowled along the bottom of the dam. A number of mountain sheep had crossed the pond a day or two before. The pond was in a deep gulch, and a goodly stream of water out of sight beneath the ice and snow was running into it. The concentrated outflow burst out over the top of the south end of the dam through an 18-inch opening. This pond was frozen over for five months. For these five months, the beaver each day had a swim or two in the water under the ice. When hungry, he took a section of an aspen from the pile on the bottom of the pond. This was dragged under the ice up into the house, where it afforded a meal of canned green bark. Most summer birds fly away from winter. Other birds and a few animals travel a short distance. Go to a place where food is more abundant, although the winter there may not be any milder than in the locality in which they summered. Birds that remain to winter in the locality in which they summered, and most of the animals, too, go about their affairs as usual. They do not store food for the winter or even for the following day. The getting of food in the land of snows does not appear to trouble them. But a number of animals, squirrels, chipmunks, conies, and beavers, store food for the winter. Generally, these supplies are placed where they are at all times readily reached by the owners on the earth, in it, in the water, the place depending on the taste and the habits of the fellow. Upon the mountain tops, the coney, or little chief hare, stacks hay each autumn. This tiny stack is placed in the shelter of a big boulder or by a big rock close to the entrance of his den. While the beaver is eating green canned bark, the coney is contentedly chewing dry cured hay. The beaver is one of the animals which solves the winter food and cold problem by storing a harvest of green aspen, birch, and willow. This is made during the autumn and is stored on the bottom of the pond below the ice line. Being canned in cold water, the bark remains fresh for months. Squirrels store nuts and cones for winter food. Most squirrels have a regular storing place. This covers only a few square yards or less and usually is within 50 or 60 feet of the base of the tree in which the squirrel has a hole and a winter home. Commonly, when dining, the squirrel goes to his granary or storage place and uses this for a dining room. A squirrel in a grove near my cabin sat on the same limb during each meal. He would take a cone, climb up to this limb, about six feet above the snow, back up against the tree, and begin eating. One day an owl flew into the woods. The squirrel dropped his cone and scampered up into the treetop without a chirp. 
Another day, a coyote came walking through the grove without a sound. He had not seen me, and I did not see him, until the squirrel suddenly exploded with a sputtering rush of squirrel words. He denounced the coyote, called him a number of names. The coyote did not like it, but what could he do? He took one look at the squirrel and walked on. The squirrel, hanging to the cone in his right hand, waved it about and cussed the coyote as far as he could see him. A number of species of chipmunks store quantities of food, mostly weed seed, but no one appears to know much of the winter life of chipmunks. Chipmunks around my home remain underground more than half of the year. Two near my cabin were out of their holes only four months one year. They were busy these four months, gathering seeds and peanuts, which they stored underground in their tunnels. Twice by digging I found the chipmunks in a sleep so heavy that I could not awaken them, and I believe they spend much of the eight months underground sleeping. Digging also revealed that they had eaten but little of their stored supplies. When food becomes scarce and the weather cold and snowy, a number of animals hole up, go into a den. By hibernating, sleeping away the weeks the earth is barren and white, they triumph over the ways of winter. Bears and groundhogs are famous hibernators. Many chipmunks and some species of squirrels hibernate for indefinite periods. The bat and the bear, they never care what winter winds may blow. The jumping mouse in his cozy house is safe from ice and snow. The chipmunk and the woodchuck, the skunk who's slow but sure, the ringed raccoon who hates the moon have found for cold the cure. Samuel Scoville Jr. in Everyday Adventures. Ah, I made up. I made up the tune though. Thought thought just came to me. Hope you liked it. Animals which hibernate fast and sleep through much or all of the winter are not harmed and possibly are benefited by the fasting and sleeping. Bears and groundhogs are fat when they go to bed in the autumn and fat and strong when they come out in the spring. A snowy winter gives a bear den a cold, excluding outer covering, closes the entrance and the air holes. Most bears and groundhogs appear to remain in the den all winter. I have known an occasional groundhog to thrust out his head for a few minutes now and then during the winter, and bears may come forth and wander about for a time, especially if not quite comfortable. I have known a number of bears to come out towards spring for brief airings and sunnings. Midwinter, a bear wanted more bedding. In fact, he did not have any, which was unusual. But the winter was cold, no snow had fallen, and the frigid wind was whistling through his poorly built den house. The usual snow would have closed the air holes and shut out the cold. He was carrying cedar bark and mouthfuls of dried grass into the den. The same winter, I came upon another bear. Cold or something else had driven him from his den. When I saw him, he was trying to reopen an old den, which was back in a bank under the roots of a spruce. He may have tried to dig a den elsewhere, but the ground was frozen almost as hard as stone. While he was working, a bobcat came snarling out. The bear struck at it. It backed off sputtering, then ran away. In tearing out a root, the bear slipped and rolled down the bank. He went off through the woods. 
Late one February, I came upon a well-worn bear trail between the sunny side of a cliff and an open den. In this trail, there were tracks fresh and tracks two or more weeks old. Elsewhere, I have seen many evidences that bears towards spring come out briefly to sun themselves and to have an airing, but never a sign of their eating or drinking anything. Near my cabin, I marked four groundhog holes after the fat fellows went in. On September 10th, I stuffed a bundle of grass in the entrance of each den. Sometime during the winter, one of them had disturbed the grass and thrust out his head. Whether this was on Groundhog Day or not, I cannot say. The other groundhogs remained below until between April 7th and 12th, about seven months. And these seven months were months of fast and possibly without water. The raccoon, who ever seems a bright original fellow, appears to have a hibernating system of his own. Many a raccoon takes a series of short hibernating sleeps each winter, and between these sleeps he is about hunting food, eating and living as usual. But I believe these periods of hibernating often correspond to stormy or snowy periods. While trying to see a flock of wild turkeys in Missouri one winter day, I had a surprise. The snow showed that they had come out of the woods and eaten corn from a corn shock. I hoped to see them by using a nearby shock for a blind and walked around the shock. The snow over and around it showed only an outgoing mouse track. No snow had fallen for two days. I had gotten into the center of the shock when I stepped on something that felt like a big dog. But a few seconds later, when it lunged against me, trying blindly to get out, it felt as big as a bear. I overturned the shock in escaping. A blinking raccoon looked at me for a few seconds, then took to the woods. Deep snow rarely troubles wildlife who lay up food for winter, and snow sometimes is even helpful to food storers, and also to the bears and groundhogs who hibernate, and even to a number of small folk who neither hibernate nor lay up supplies. One winter afternoon, I followed down the brook which flows past my cabin. The last wind had blown from an unusual quarter, the northeast. It made haystack drifts in a number of small aspen groves. One of these drifts was perhaps twenty feet across and about as high. The treetops were sticking out of it. On the top of the snowdrift, a cottontail was feeding happily off the bark of the small limbs. This raised platform had given him a good opportunity to get at a convenient food supply. He was making the most of this. At the bottom, he had bored a hole in the snow pile and apparently planned to live there. While peeping into this hole, two mice scampered along it. This snow would protect them against coyotes. Safe under the snow, they could make their little tunnels, eat grass and gnaw bark, without the fear of a coyote jumping upon them. Tracks and records in the snow showed that for two days, a coyote did not capture a thing to eat. During this time, he had traveled miles. He had closely covered a territory about three miles in diameter. There was game in it, but his luck was against him. He was close to a rabbit, grabbed a mouthful of feathers, but the grouse escaped and even looked at a number of deer. At last, after more than two days, and possibly longer, he caught a mouse or two. Antelope in the plains appear to live in the same territory the year round. Many times in winter I have been out on the plains and found a flock feeding where I had seen it in summer. 
but one snowy time they were gone. I found them about fifteen miles to the west, where either less snow had fallen or the wind had partly swept it, swept it away. The antelope were in good condition. While I watched them, a number started a race. The wolves had also moved. A number of these big gray fellows were near the antelope. Just what the other antelope and the other wolves who used this locality did about these new folks, I cannot guess. Mountain deer and elk, who usually range high during the summer, go to the lowlands or several miles down to the mountains for the winter. They may thus be said to migrate vertically. One thousand feet of descent equals, approximately, the climatic changes of a thousand miles southward journey. They may thus winter from five to twenty-five miles from where they summered, from one thousand to several thousand feet lower. The elk that winter in the Jackson Hole region have a summer range on the mountains forty or fifty miles away. But elk and deer that have a home territory in the lowlands are likely to be found summer after summer in the same small unfenced pasture. Moose, caribou, deer, and elk during heavy snows often resort to yarding. Moose and caribou are experts in taking care of themselves during long winters of deep snows. They select a yard which offers the maximum food supply and other winter opportunities. One snowy winter, I visited a number of elk that were yarding. High peaks rose snowy and treeless above the home in the forest. The ragged-edged yard was about half a mile long and a quarter of a mile wide. About one half the yard was a swamp covered with birch and willow and a scattering of fir. The remainder was a combination of open spaces, aspen groves, and a thick growth of spruce. Constant trampling compressed the snow and enabled the elk readily to move about. Outside the yard, they would have bogged in deep snow. In the swamp, the elk reached the moss, weeds, and other growths. But towards spring, the grass and weeds had either been eaten or were buried beneath icy snow. The elk then ate aspen twigs and the tops and limbs and bark of birch and willow. Ease of movement in this area enabled the elk to keep enemies at bay. Several times I saw from tracks that lion had entered this self-made wildlife reservation, and on two occasions a number of wolves invaded it. But each time, the elk had bunched in a pocket of a trampled space and effectively fought off the wolves. One day, late in February, I visited the yard. The elk plainly had lost weight, but were not in bad condition. While I lingered near the entire herd, while I lingered near, the entire herd joined merrily in chase and tag, often racing then wheeling to rear high and fence with heads. If I counted correctly, this herd went through the entire winter without the loss of an elk. But the caribou appears to be the only animal which migrates between summer and winter ranges, that is, which makes a long journey of hundreds of miles. As much change of place as made by many species of migrating birds. The main cause for this migration is the food supply, but myriads of mosquitoes in the woods may be one cause of the moose moving each summer far into the north, where there are grassy prairies and large openings in the woods. But for winter, they seek food and shelter in a yard in the forest. While snowshoeing in the forested mountains to the southeast of Long's Peak, I came upon a mountain lion track startlingly fresh. I followed it to a den beneath a rock pile at the bottom of a cliff. 
Evidently the lion was in. Seeing older tracks which he had made on leaving the den, I trailed these. After zigzagging through the woods, he had set off in a beeline for the top of a cliff. From this point, he evidently saw a number of deer. He had crawled forward, then backtracked and turned to the right, then made round to the left. The snow was somewhat packed, and his big feet held him on the surface. The deer broke through. The lion climbed upon a fallen tree and crept forward. He was screened by its large, upturned root. At last, he rushed out and seized a nearby deer and killed it, evidently after a short struggle. He had then pursued and killed a young deer that had fled off to the left where it was struggling in the heavy snows. Without returning to the first kill, the lion fed off the second and returned to the den. I followed the other deer. In a swamp, they had fed for a time on the tops of tall weeds among the snow and willows. I came close to them in a thick growth of spruce. Here the snow was less deep. A goodly portion of the snow still clung to the trees. These deer circled out of the spruce swamp and came into their trail made in entering it. Back along this trail, they followed to where the lion had made the first kill. Leaping over this dead deer, they climbed up on the rocky ridge, off which so much snow had blown that they could travel speedily most of the time, over the rocks, with only now and then a stretch of deep snow. Often during my winter trips I came upon a porcupine. Both winter and summer he seemed blindly content. There were ten thousand trees around, and winter or summer there were meals to last a lifetime. Always he had a dull, sleepy look, and I doubt if he ever gets enthusiastic enough to play. Birds that remain all winter in snowy lands enjoy themselves. Like the winter animals, usually they are well fed. But most species of birds with their airplane wings fly up and down the earth, go northward in the spring and southward in the autumn, and thus linger where summer lingers and move with it when it moves. Around me, the skunks hibernated about two months each year. Some winters, possibly not at all. Generally, the entire skunk family, from two to eight, hole up together. One den, which I looked into in midwinter, had a stack of eight sleepy skunks in it. A bank had caved off, exposing them. I left them to sleep on, for had I wakened them, they might not have liked it, and who wants to mix up with a skunk? Another time, a snowslide tore a big stump out by the roots and disclosed four skunks beneath. When I arrived, about half an hour after the tear-up, the skunks were blinking and squirming, as though apparently too drowsy to decide whether to get up or to have another good sleep. Many tales have been told about the terrible hunger and ferocity of wolves during the winter. This may sometimes be so. Wolves seem ever to have good, though not enormous, appetites. Sometimes, too, they go hungry for days without a full meal. But generally, if the winter is snowy, the snow makes it easier for them to make a big kill. Deer, elk, and mountain sheep occasionally are caught in deep snow or are struck by a snowslide. A number sometimes are snowbound or killed at one time. Usually, the prowling wolves or coyotes discover the kill and remain near as long as the feast hold out, holds out. Once I knew of a number of wolves and two lions lingering for more than two weeks at the wreckage brought down by a snowslide. I was camping down below in the woods, and each evening heard a hullabaloo, 
and when awake in the night, I heard it. Occasionally, I heard it in the daytime. Finally, a grizzly made a discovery of this feeding ground. He may have scented it, or he may have heard the uproars a mile or two away. For the wolves and the lions feasted, fought, and played by the hour. The row became so uproarious one night that I started up to see what it was all about. But the night was dark, and I turned back to wait until morning. Things had then calmed down, and only the grizzly remained. After he ran off, I found that from fifteen to twenty deer had been swept down by the slide and mixed with the tree wreckage. The right kind of winter clothing is an important factor for winter life for both people and animals. The clothing problem, perhaps, is more important than the food question. Winter in the temperate zone causes most birds and animals to change clothing, to put on a different suit. This usually is of winter weight, and in many cases of a different color than that of the summer suit. Bears, beavers, wolves, and sheep put on a new bright, heavy suit in autumn, and by spring this is worn and faded. The weasel wears yellow-brown clothes during summer, but during winter is in pure white fur, the tip of the tail only being jet black. The snowshoe rabbit has a new suit at the beginning of each winter. This is furry, warm, and pure white. His summer clothes are a trifle darker in color than those of other rabbits. If there is no snow, he eats with his feet on the earth or on a fallen log or rock pile. But if there is a deep snow, he has snowshoes fastened on and is ever ready to go lightly over the softest surface. In these ways, hibernating, eating stored food, or living as in summertime from hand to mouth, the animals of the temperate zone go contentedly through the winter with a change of habit and all with a change of clothing. The winter commonly is without hardship, and there is time for pranks and play. Winter, so the animal Eskimos say, and so the life of the temperate zone shows, will bear acquaintance. Uh, and I'd just like to point out that the use of the word Eskimo there is problematic. Uh, it's commonly used to refer to native peoples of Alaska and other Arctic regions, um, but it's considered a derogatory term by many because it was used by racist non-native colonizers. Um, so that's, I don't want to use language that's used by racist non-native colonizers, and uh, it's uh, in our language in so many places. Um, so we need to keep working at uh, examining our language and the ways that we think and how that language influences uh, us. Uh, it's so insidious. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, it's, it's complicated. There are... Uh, many indigenous peoples and some might call themselves Eskimos but basically if you're not an indigenous person uh, then don't use the word Eskimo uh, it's pretty simple actually um, so we need to keep examining our language and uh, looking at how deeply insidious so many of these things are uh, there's just so much racism and colonialism and uh, patriarchy built into our language and and it's it starts there uh, so 
let's uh, let's start paying attention and examining and dismantling and changing our our words and our thoughts and our actions. Um, and uh, I'd also like to point out, for instance, that uh, Enos A. Mills uh, talked about uh, all these animals as being he, and uh, I'm. Um, I'm gonna guess that you know there there are some there were she animals uh, also in in going through the winter. Uh, so uh, anyway, uh, that's uh, you know I really I really enjoyed reading about the the winter lives of animals and um, and the landscape, and uh, it's also got me thinking about you know how the landscape has changed and how. Uh, humans have destroyed uh, and are destroying so much of the land and wildlife and uh, so uh, yeah so uh, anyway uh, it's my bit of, a bit, of, bit of a downer bear at the moment I guess but um, I'm gonna go look at the moon again and and recharge and you know we can all um we can all look at the moon and uh maybe reach reach out your paw to somebody and uh and try to try to connect and um help lift each other up uh look at the moon Look at the moon. 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 you got simmering on the stove there? Oh, I got some um, ginger garlic seaweed broth going. Uh, it's just one of my warm, nourishing go-tos. Uh, you know, and you, you need to get things moving, you know, and warmed up. Um, and you need uh, a little extra nourishment. Um, you know, ginger and garlic are both fantastic at, at heating things up and getting them moving, getting that blood going, and um, uh, seaweed is also just fantastic 
um, and has so many nutrients and minerals and um, moistening action. And the, the three together just make a really lovely broth. Oh, that, um, that sounds delicious, Miss Mousy. Uh, I wouldn't mind having a cup here. Uh, get get warmed up and uh, you know get get things moving. Yeah, it's um great for uh, when you're physically cold, but emotionally cold too. Um, uh, yeah, I can't say enough good things about ginger, garlic, and seaweed by themselves and together. Uh, so here, let me get you a cup. And uh, I just like to, I just chop up garlic, chop up ginger, cut up some seaweed, and throw it in a pot with some water, bring to a boil, and simmer, um, you know, usually half an hour at least uh, for the first round, uh, and then um, strain it out, uh, have, a, have a nice cup or two, and add more water, and do it again. I do it a couple of times. Oh, that that sounds sounds great. Uh, how how do you know when to stop? Well, it's it's really up to you. Um, you know, you keep keep going until there's there's not much flavor left, and then you know you you've gotten it out. Uh, or you can actually eat the ginger, garlic, and seaweed in the broth like soup. Uh, or you can add other things in there, um, and use it as a a base for soup. So. Uh, you know, there's there's lots of options, but um, I think this this time of year um, we we need well, it depends where you live, of course. But since uh, where where we are and it's winter and um, and well, I guess it's not winter yet, uh, but it's you know coming into winter. And uh, anyway, it's it's a little bit cold, you know, so. Um, Anyway, um, you know, I, I was thinking uh, maybe you should change your website to say uh, you do a podcast the day after the new moon and the day after the full moon. Oh, yeah. Very funny, Miss Mousy. Thanks a lot. Oh, I'm just teasing you. Here, come on. Have a nice cup of hot broth and warm up and, um, you know, remind your listeners I'm just a two-dimensional hand-drawn rodent studying herbalism and um they should you know go look up more about ginger garlic and seaweed and not just take my word for it um but i do say a a nice a nice hot cup of broth or or soup uh, among friends you know that's that's about as good as it gets oh yeah you're you're not wrong there miss mousy uh a little warmth a little friendship uh goes a little soup goes a long way uh so uh yeah i'll i'll drink to that and i'd like to read from uh you know our friend maud greaves modern herbal um garlic was placed by the ancient greeks on the piles of stones at crossroads as a supper for hecate and according to Pliny, garlic and onion were invocated as deities by the Egyptians at the taking of oaths. So, um, you know, this is pretty powerful, powerful stuff, you know, garlic. Well, I'll, I'll swear by this broth. It's, uh, it's definitely got, got me warmed up and moving. So, uh, thanks, Miss Mousy. Uh, I'll, um, I'll, I'll be back. I'll see you back on the new moon. 
Okay, take care, Mr. Bear. Are you or anyone you know a musician? Amateur, professional, experimental? Do you tell stories with music and song? Are you interested in being considered for a potential feature on Mr. Bear's Violet Hour? If you have answered yes to any of these questions, please send samples of your work, links to Bandcamp, SoundCloud, your website, digital demo tape files on Google Docs, whatever you have, to violethourmoon at gmail.com. Well, that's the show, but uh, that's a shorter show than usual, um, but that's, you know, just how I was feeling and what happened this month, so, um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna do an oracle for you, the listener, whoever's listening to this right now, uh, uh, this oracle is for you, and hope it has some meaning. Uh, this is from Francine Pascal's Sweet Valley High, number 74, The Perfect Girl. Robin will do anything to keep George. That's me flipping to find the oracle for you, the listener. Okay. I reserve my talents for more important things, Liz, Jessica replied as she punched a staple through the poster. Or we could call it General Wilson's super-organized Sunday, she added sarcastically. Hmm. Well, I'm, um, I'm going to let you ponder that. Uh, you know, reserve, reserve your talents for more important things. Um, or maybe, maybe things are important that you don't think are. Maybe there's no need for that sarcasm. Or maybe a Sunday would be delicious. Or maybe making a poster is uh, something you want to do right now. Well, I think there's a lot to ponder there, so uh, I'm going to leave you with that. Thank you so much for joining me in the Violet Hour, as always. Uh, happy to spend time with you. Uh... I hope that you all have something to be thankful for. I hope you have some joy and community. I hope you're able to spend time with family, whether it's virtually or in person. I hope you feel a little less alone looking at the moon and, uh, you know, listening to whatever, whatever I, little things I have to offer in the Violet Hour. Um, I would also like to, um, remind people to think about uh, the true history of Thanksgiving, which is coming up, um, and the uh, travesties and injustices that happen every day in this country, and, uh, you know, the massacring and gaslighting we've done to indigenous peoples and to the land, and, um, you know, maybe just just take a moment if you're comfortable and privileged uh, to think to think about these things and what we can do to fight white supremacy and racism and the patriarchy and racial capitalism and all the rest and um, uh, I just want to send out some joy and some love and 
uh, whatever. Hope, hope you have some joy and some love and some healing and community around you. Um, also, I wanted to do a quick shout out. I don't usually do shout outs, but maybe I'll start. Uh, well, I guess I am starting because here's a shout out. Uh, a shout out to Kathy Ulrich, uh, an amazing writer who I've featured here before uh, because she always sends me postcards, which is so kind. And uh, I don't I don't send nearly as many back to her. Um, but, uh, you know, Sending sending something to somebody is uh, a beautiful thing, and um, I appreciate it. So shout out to Kathy Elric. Also shout out to Gabrielle Griffiths, whose uh, music I've featured twice on the show. Uh, but she sent me some pictures of her Pomeranian recently, Uli, who is super cute, um, and uh, rides on her bicycle with her, and um, that made me happy. So uh, anyway, uh, if you if you have anything you want to share with me. Um, uh, or if you have music you want featured, uh, you know, if you're, if you're looking for, for a shout out, you can email me or Miss Mousy at violethourmoon at gmail.com. Thanks for, thanks for joining me. I will be back with you for the new moon in December. So take care and be kind to each other. Theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. Mr. Bear and Miss Mousy believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. Together we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city comma state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, you can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org for more information. There's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and indigenous peoples, past, present, and future. This podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and Somerville Media Center, Somerville's longest-running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity, explain its ideas, share its cultures, and foster the individual right to freedom of speech. Learn more about Somerville Media Center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing Boston Free Radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com. Thanks for listening.